Could metric-based pricing be the key to bringing relief to employers dealing with runaway facility costs? And is it a practical tool for your practice? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and Chief Transformation Strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement designed specifically for educational institutions. If you have clients in that vertical, you know the healthcare deck has been stacked against them. Today, Captivated Health offers the stability, control, and savings they've been waiting for. For more information, go to www.captivatedhealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're pleased to be speaking with Steve Kelly. Steve is the president and co-founder of ELAP Services, and we're going to be talking about something that a lot of people talk about. There's been a whole ton of discussion, but there aren't a lot of people who actually know the ins and outs of how it works and why it's important and where it may take our industry. And that's the broad field of reference-based pricing. So with that, welcome, Steve. Hello, David. How are you today? I'm well. Thanks for taking time to share your expertise with the Shift Shapers audience. We appreciate it. Pleasure being here. So let's dive right in at the 10,000-foot level. What is reference-based pricing? David, reference-based pricing is a very broad topic, but the most specific way to describe it, I think, would be to say it's an alternative to traditional PPOs, and it typically involves some methodology whereby a plan, a self-funded plan in most cases, will use an alternate method of reimbursement. And that could be a Medicare Plus designation, It could be something that conforms to the medical provider's own cost structure, but it moves away from a PPO environment in which there is a lack of transparency, perhaps, or a contract that's not visible to the plan itself, and moves towards something where the plan can install a metric or a reference-based reimbursement parameter by which they are going to pay claims. So it really takes the reimbursement process embeds it in the plan document, and it's a lot more accessible and a lot more definable by the plan itself. Okay, that's a great place to start. Can you give us an example of the traditional way that a claim might be priced and how that might fare differently under reference or metric-based pricing? Sure. The largest example, or one of the largest examples of reference-based pricing was the CalPERS case, and that's the California Retirement System. They went to a process where it was a traditional PPO environment, and what they did is they said for the facility portion, for the hospital portion of hip and knee replacements, rather than rely on a PPO contract that had different relations with every single provider where a hip or a knee might be replaced, rather than rely on the individual contract provisions that Blue Cross of California or Anthem had in place, they said, Let's just define this ourselves. So CalPERS in their own plan document said, for hips and knees, we are going to pay a flat amount for that facility portion. And let's just say it's $30,000. So for every plan member that has a hip or a knee replaced, 
they're going to pay that $30,000 amount to the facility. That's different than a traditional PPO model in which if there were 25 or 30 participating hospitals, there could be a different amount paid at every location. And that's what really motivated CalPERS. They saw that there was tremendous variance, tremendous fluctuation in the amount that was being paid for these rather common procedures. So they thought to take that variability out, they would simply state affirmatively on the plan side, here is what our plan pays. So instead of the wild fluctuations, place by place, contract provision by contract provision, it was just a flatly stated amount of reimbursement for that category of service. Well, I think this is one of the places where people oftentimes get confused. So let's dig a little bit deeper. From the patient's perspective, they don't know much of this is going on, if any of this is going on in the background. But do plans that engage in reference or metric-based pricing have an agreement with the facility that that's all they're going to be paid? Or do you still get into the dynamic tension between the surgeons or physicians or facility and the pricing that they want? versus the reference-based pricing leaving a patient holding a balance due? That's exactly the question, David, is how is that communicated? How much is the reference-based or metric-based amount accepted by the provider community? So in the case of a CalPERS, you would hope that they had a an extensive communication process to the workforce because, to your point, when the patient shows up at one of those facilities – and has a hip or a knee replaced, and the plan reimburses $30,000, well, if the facility had charged $100,000 and there's no contract provision in place that says that the facility is going to accept that amount, then the employee can be on the hook for the balance, for the difference between the reference-based payment and the amount that the provider charged. And that's, that's a concern, of course, in this model because how does the member fare? And that is always the rub. It's easy enough for a plan to simply state unilaterally, this is what we're going to pay for these categories of service. And there's an obvious economic incentive for the plan to do so. But how does the patient fare in these situations? And there's just different approaches depending on who you speak to. Obviously, I think it's critical, critical that the plan members are educated and advised in how the plan works exactly how and what they should do should they receive a balance bill. And there are wide differences in the amount of support and advocacy that's provided for a patient who might receive a balance bill in one of these situations. Well, a lot of our listeners are on the front lines. They're benefit advisors and they're out speaking with clients. And as you know, there's a resurgence of interest in self-insured plans given what the remainder of the market looks like. But if I'm a CFO of XYZ company and you're suggesting that in our plan document, we have some kind of reference-based pricing, my question is, when my employees get that balance bill, what do they do? How do we handle that? So you said there are a variety of approaches. What are some of them? What do you think works best? I think the best, first of all, is this should be, this whole concept needs to be communicated prior to inception. So at the enrollment meetings, there should be representatives of whomever the vendor is, whomever the provider is that's behind the reference-based approach. There needs to be clear communication of exactly what this is and how it works. And should there be a problem, should you receive a balance bill, 
there should be an outreach clearly communicated to the workforce exactly how to contact the people that can assist them in the process. And there are different levels of support. There are some plans that will allow an 800 number where you could call and perhaps speak to somebody about consumer protections and and what might be available. And there are programs that provide full-blown legal defense to a plan member that receives a balanced bill. It just depends on the particular culture of the employer. Uh, There are employers that feel I'm going to make a reasonable payment on behalf of my workforce, and then I'm going to let it go. And and that's just the way it is. There are others who feel much more paternal and much more protective of their workforce. And they might say, well, I would allow, should there be any kind of pushback to the member, I would provide legal defense for the plan member. There are some employers who at the point of pushback or balanced billing will reach out to the provider to see if there is a negotiation possible. So there's a full range of options that are available. And I think that they need to contour to the employer's own mindset and the employer's own culture. But you know, it's interesting, uh, David, I think more and more we're seeing employers are reaching kind of an unfortunate decision point where they are left with the option of either pushing more cost down to the workforce, pushing more out-of-pocket expense in order to control rising expenses, or moving to an option like reference-based pricing. And you really get to a point where, and we see this with many employers, if my employees that are making forty or $50,000 a year have a three or five or $6,000 out-of-pocket obligation, that in itself is going to create credit impairment. That is going to cause balance billing because people don't have the amount of out-of-pocket exposures not commensurate with the income of the individual. So I think you're, you're beginning to see that more and more employers are t- making the choice to say, I will use an approach like reference-based pricing. There could be some pushback against my workforce, but if I properly manage this, if I provide some support and ad- advocacy provisions within my plan, I think the overall, my employees will be better off with this approach than were I to just simply push down an increased amount of out-of-pocket expense overall to the entire workforce. Well, yeah, I I understand that. I wonder if you have any metrics on how often this kind of a balance billing situation comes up and what are the kind of feedback you're getting from the provider and facility community? Our experience is that about 15% of the files handled generate some sort of balance bill. And another 5% will generate a formal appeal from the medical provider. Roughly about one out of five files have some level of pushback attached to them. And it could range from a, you know, a phone call or one balance bill to full-blown collections. It really depends on the particular provider's level of aggressiveness. It's variable, but overall we see that about one out of five files do create some sort of organized or some kind of formal response from the medical provider. And do you have any kind of a feeling or metrics on how many of those are resolved and in how many cases the employee is still left paying a balance? I think that the number of situations in which the employee actually ends up paying a balance are very, very small in our experience. Now, in most of the cases that I see, there's a high level of advocacy being provided for that patient. But clearly, there are many situations where collection firms will push against a plan member until they are able to arrange some kind of payment terms, and many times plan members who are not supported or advocated for or not don't have access to legal support you know, might be vulnerable to those kind of heavy-handed tactics. So 
it's all the more reason, I think, that if employers are going to select this option, they do need to make sure that they're behind their employees, that they're standing with them shoulder to shoulder. Our experiences and, and what I hear from other people involved in this field, this is manageable. And as I said earlier, it can contour to the culture of the employer, but it requires a unified effort on the HR level, on the CFO level, on the executive suite of the company, all the way down to the workforce. And if it's done in that manner, it can be successful. It's interesting also, David, that we see in many cases, you'll see a self-funded plan that has been paying claims for years and has no understanding of the amounts they're paying. They're just paying through a PPO. They'll adopt the reference-based pricing approach. It will bring them into contact and dialogue with a local provider or a health system. Oftentimes, it might be a little bit contentious at first, but ultimately, that gives way to a business discussion between the two parties. I think that's very, very positive, that sort of outcome where you begin to get a local school district and a local health system at the table, having a transparent discussion about how best to provide benefits to the workforce. So it's not all bad news. There are quite a few examples and more all the time where what initially starts out as potentially contentious ends up in a collaborative manner and you can end up with a direct contract between the parties or any number of positive outcomes. It's not all just balance bills and headbanging. It often moves to a very productive place between the two parties. And now, a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single-source solution for your clients and prospects who are in the education vertical. The founders of Captivated Health have nearly 20 years' experience working with educational institutions, and over that time, they've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems these clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing health care costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems, and it does so with virtually no disruption to faculty and staff while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to the educational clients you advise. To learn more about the Captivated Health solution, go to their website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on their logo on the Shift Shapers website. And now, back to our interview. So in the CalPERS example, it was two procedures. In the plans that you're working with today, do most of the plans select specific high-cost procedures or repetitive procedures, or is this something they're doing across the entire gamut of procedures, of facility-based procedures? It's a mix. I think that one model that we have seen very commonly is one in which the plan may select a physician-only PPO. They may use a PPO for their physician claims, which numerically, physician claims professional claims in general can end up being 80 to 90% of the volume of claims. But that 10 to 20% that are facility-based can be 50 or 60% of the spend, the overall dollars coming out of the plan. So you can, an employer may select a physician PPO because all of the professional claims, and that's where the relationship is between the patient and the practitioner. It's between the, the doctor, you're speaking there of 
pediatricians, primary care docs, OBGYNs. That's where people don't want to have to move from. But on the, on the facility side, and that's where we see the most what I would call predatory examples, bills that have no rational relationship to the actual cost to deliver the service, they are more commonly found on the facility side. So we see often that plans will select to use metric-based pricing on the facility portion only. And I would define facility as hospitals, dialysis, ambulatory surgical centers, the bricks and mortar portion of a claim. But I've also seen, you know, there are many employers who are opting to just go completely out of network and pay all of the claims on a metric basis. It just depends on the, on the model. And then there are some who, CalPERS would be an example, where they retain a traditional PPO model, but just carve out certain services within that PPO that might be particularly volatile or variable in terms of the cost. So it's a mixed bag, David. It's, it's really all across the board. So if I'm an employer and I'm considering one of these strategies, what kind of delta in spend might I expect? What, what's the savings? That also is variable and it's real, it's reflective of the particular PPO environment, what kind of discounts are available or, or whom has the power in a particular region, whether it's the health systems, the insurers. But it's not uncommon in our experience to see year over year moving from a traditional PPO environment to a metric-based environment that will see reductions in costs of 20 to 25% year over year. And that has been, over the 10 years that we've been observing this field and seeing this field, that has been pretty consistent. In some areas of the country, it might be 30. In some areas, it might be 5 or 10. It just depends on what the managed care and climate is in a particular region. But there's no doubt that there are significant savings available. There are a number of stop-loss carriers who have been following this field and writing reinsurance over plans that have adopted metric-based models. And you will see it's not uncommon that they are offering deductibles, spec deductibles, or credits on the spec premium of 15 to 20%. So they would not be doing that. They obviously have skin in the game, and they've been following the results for years. I think one of the strongest testimonials to the economic impact is that stop-loss carriers are showing pretty significant credits on their premiums. You know, the employer community also is realizing a tremendous benefit, often, as I say, 15 to 20, 25% year-over-year spend. That's strong. Now, So the question is, we talked about facilities charges, and you're correct. The facilities charges are where most of the spend is. So we talked about on the medical side, but with pharmacy being such a huge part of overall medical spend and such a huge part of trend, is anyone applying this or thinking about applying this kind of a process to pharma as well? There are people using metric-based approaches to pharma. It's a little different because in, in most transactions on that side, it's pretty much cash and carry or, or it's, it's done at the point of sale. If the drug isn't paid for, the people don't leave the pharmacy. So we do see people using more of these methods on the pharmacy side, but that has not been an area that I have personally have been focused on as much. We have been working largely in the on the facility side and we do work on pharmaceuticals in that respect if it's a drug administered inpatient those we would be utilizing our metric based approach on but if it's just retail pharmacy that's really not something i can comment on with any kind of extensive background we just have not done that 
Fair enough. We've got about a minute or so left, Steve, and we always like to ask our guests what they see the future looking like. So define that how you will, whether it's near-term, mid-term, long-term, but how do you see the growth curve of metric-based pricing? Do you think it's going to be commonplace or where's it going? I believe it will be. And a model that we see emerging and one that we're actively you know, involved in is one in which a, an employer selects a local high-performance health system or gets to the table with a health system and carves out a direct contract for services. It could be several different providers, but they're going to get their services from a very, very narrow or even exclusive network of providers. And then outside of that, they will audit or reprice to a metric everything that falls outside of that narrow contracted network. And I think that the reason that's attractive is, one, if you pick the right partner, your workforce can have access without any kind of economic jeopardy, no no balance bills, to a high-quality high provider. But you as a manager of the plan assets can also be sure that your outlay for services is not going to be widely variable and fluctuate. You know, we've seen that, I think you could argue that the broad-based PPO model has done nothing to control cost, and arguably it does nothing to advance quality. So if you, those are two rather significant elements in delivering a benefit plan. So if we can make the case, and I believe we absolutely can, that the employee has better chance at a, a positive health outcome and the plan has a better chance to contain cost, that will be an approach that will greatly broaden the prospect pool for this approach. More and more employers will find that tenable as a benefit strategy. And I think you're going to see more and more of that. So I think a very, very tight network surrounded by a reference-based pricing matrix is something that will be very, very popular in the very near future. It's, it's happening now. Well, it's a great place to end our discussion today, but we do hope you'll come back as this evolves. Steve Kelly, president and co-founder of Elap Services. Steve, thanks again. David, thank you. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to coming back again. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved.